Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to tell you about something really cool that we're giving away with this series. I'm preaching these sermons because I'm convinced that when we talk about or think about Jesus as the Messiah, we attach little or even no meaning to that phrase, the Messiah. It's my hope in this series that we'll better understand how rich and important that term is. And so we created this devotional booklet for the series that takes 18 passages of scripture from the Old Testament that Jewish people thought of when they thought of and longed for the upcoming Messiah. With each of those passages, we've connected a brief daily devotional thought that kind of connects to the idea that the passage teaches about the coming Messiah, about who Jesus will be. My hope, and I believe this is going to happen, is that when you read these devotional booklets, you will have a better understanding of what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. And out of that, you will appreciate Jesus more, and you'll appreciate how important and world-changing his birth was. You can download one of those booklets by going to wilsonville.church slash messiah. That's wilsonville.church slash messiah. I hope you do that. Again, thanks for taking some time to listen to this sermon. I hope that it will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. I want to talk about Jesus as the Messiah. And as I started this series by saying a couple of weeks ago, it is a topic that, that I think is important because when you read the Bible, it, it makes such a big deal about Jesus being the Messiah. The word Christ, which we almost know is Jesus' last name, Jesus the Christ or Jesus Christ, is, is the same term. It's the Greek version of the Hebrew term that means Messiah, the Messiah. And, and yet, we who are non-Jewish Christians, we read this term, at least if you're anything like me, Messiah, and it, it almost goes in one year and out the other. It's like uh, the angels in the, in the great story of Christmas when they make the announcement to the shepherds. They, they say to these shepherds, today has been born in the town of David, city of Bethlehem, a savior, the Messiah. It's like what they want the the shepherds to know about Jesus is that this is their Messiah. And we read that, and if you're a Christian, you've been a Christian a while, you've read it a lot of times. We read it every Christmas with my family, and, and, and we focus maybe, if we think about it, on that word Savior, but we, we can forget about what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. At the same time, and I don't know if you're like me in this, but, but I think a lot of people are, oftentimes it's difficult to connect emotionally with with Jesus like even if you're believing all the right things even if you're doing all the right things you know this if you've been a Christian this is maybe a secret if you're not a Christian it's like it's not always something that we feel passionate about Jesus and who he is and what he's done for us and and especially at Christmas I think it's like the worst because we've We've heard these stories, we have these routines, and we love the routines, but we have forgotten and we've divorced those routines of any real meaning as far as Jesus is concerned. We just go through the routines because they are our traditions, not because we remember the, the, the real reason for those traditions. And, and frankly, uh, I 
over quite a long period have been struggling to connect emotionally with with Jesus and doesn't bother me as much as it did when I was a younger Christian. I remember, maybe you've had this conversation, I had this conversation a lot kind of early in my serious Christian faith. Like, I, I feel far from God right now. Have you ever said that? Like, I just feel distant from God. And at some point, I came to this marvelous conclusion that I'm, uh, I'm not distant from God, and my feelings do not dictate where God goes or doesn't go in my life. And my feelings do not dictate whether or not I am trying to do the right things, uh, the worshipful things, the things that glorify God with my life. It was very freeing just to think about that. Yet, at the same time, we like to feel close to God, do we not? And it wasn't until this week studying for this passage of Scripture, this sermon and this passage of Scripture, that, that God, frankly, brought tears to my eyes. I had an awkward moment at Starbucks where some man happened to look up at me right when I was working on this sermon, and I was like flooding my eyes with tears, and he looked at me, and I looked away and <laughs> looked down. <laughs> like I, I'm not, something in my eye, I promise. Uh, you know, I wouldn't have done that at home, but at Starbucks, it was awkward. And, and so today, we're going to look at this, this aspect of Jesus as the Messiah that oftentimes we we neglect during the Christmas season. And frankly, it's the part of the Messiah that the Jews neglected the most. It's the part that they, they forgot about, frankly, when they thought about what the Messiah would be like when he came. And I think in doing so, it's going to bring us to this place, hopefully, where, where we again remember at least why we should be passionate about who Jesus is. And not only that, it answers this incredible question that, that if you're not a Christian, you probably have. And if you are a Christian, uh, there's areas of your life where you may have it. It's like, why should I serve this Messiah? Why should I do things that he has asked me to do? And here's where we begin, Matthew 1.19. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. Last week we talked about the scenario. Mary is this virgin girl who's 12 to 14 years old. She is engaged, but betrothed is a better word, which means she basically has entered into a marriage contract with this man named Joseph, who is some 18 years old. And yet they have not come together. And so they were married legally. And and as far as as commitment goes, but they did not live together yet as husband and wife. I talked about that for a long time last week, but that's, I think, a fair summary. And she is found to be pregnant. After she is conceived through the power of the Holy Spirit, she goes away to a relative's house, and she comes back into Nazareth, this town where her and Joseph live, at about four months pregnant, and she is, as, as it says, found to be pregnant because she looks pregnant. And the, the question that we left hanging out there last week, and, and maybe you didn't even think to ask it, and, and you probably know the answer already, but it would have been the question if you didn't know the story is, what's Joseph going to do with this information? How is Joseph going to respond? And this passage answers the question, the, the answer for Joseph being this 18 to 33 year old, depending on who you talk to, man that now is looking at this woman that he is committed to he's looking at her and she's pregnant and he believes and this is what you would have believed too that she had committed adultery that she had not been faithful to the marriage vows that she had committed uh, that she had made to him and she had become pregnant by another man Joseph says well it wasn't me it has to be somebody else and in the Jewish world by the law of God 
If Mary had broken the covenant of marriage and she had committed adultery, then he had no choice legally but to divorce her. It says here that Joseph was faithful to the law. That's an important word. It means that he's just or righteous, but it's a word that is used for some of the great men of faith in the Bible, specifically in the birth story of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, Zechariah and Elizabeth and Simeon. They are incredible people, faithful people to God. They're older than Joseph. And here it says that Joseph is this faithful man, a man who wants to do what God wants him to do. And so he's sitting there, right? I mean, can you, can you imagine this girl comes back into this small town called Nazareth and everybody sees she's pregnant and you're embarrassed and it's awkward and, and, and you could marry her anyway, but you'd be breaking the law and hurting your relationship with God. And so it only leaves you really two choices as a faithful God-serving Jewish person. You can divorce her publicly or you can divorce her privately. And you think, easy choice, right? I mean, if you're gonna be nice at all, then you just divorce her quietly. And, and it says that that's what Joseph wanted to do. It says he actually wanted to do that. I find that interesting. That's what he wanted to do in order to lessen Mary's shame. But you need to understand that a couple of things would have, would have happened to Joseph if he would have made this choice to divorce her quietly. One is that, that he would have lost the ability to recoup the money that they brought into the marriage together. I told you last week that there were some gifts given with this betrothal process and this betrothal process. And, and one is a gift from the woman's parents to the newly married couple in order that they can start off on a, on a solid financial footing. Now we don't know from our version of the story that that happened, but it's something that did happen and it's something that probably would have happened for Mary and Joseph. If he divorces her publicly, then he can claim that money and keep that money. At the same time, he, as I said last week, probably gave her a gift. We think of rings when we think of the engagement process. It was not that. But something with financial money value. He gave it to her. And if he divorces her quietly, he's not going to get that back most likely. But on top of that, just the financial stuff, which, man, alive. If you've ever been broken up with, like, those sound like pretty good options, right? Like, you just want to bring the person out and say, hey, look what they did to me, and can, how dare you, and you're talking to your friends whenever you see them. Do you know what they did, you know? And, and over time, it morphs into you broke up with them, and you know what I mean? Like, and it's just natural when somebody hurts you romantically to, to like, want to get back at them. And so the financial piece makes sense, but beyond that, if he divorces her quietly, then it brings shame on him. He's already shamed through this. It's like you, here you are and, and you picked this woman or your parents picked this woman that couldn't even remain faithful for the year between the betrothal and you guys moving in and you would live you know, the rest of your life kind of being known as a lesser man. That's tough, that's tough. But to divorce her quietly would magnify that to divorce her publicly is to get back at her, to take back your manhood, to, to show the world you are against this and how dare her and she won't win over me. And yet, and I love this, Joseph looks at this woman who he knows will be publicly shamed the rest of her life. She won't be able to get married, which means that she will not be able to support herself after her parents die because men are the ones who, who made the money. And he looks at her and, and he thinks he's been wronged and he, he just wants to lessen her shame even, even at the cost of his own shame. I love that. I love that about Joseph. 
And so that's what he has in his mind to do. And then in Matthew 1.20, something different happens. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Notice son of David here. That's a really interesting phrase. The only time in, in, in the Bible that anybody but Jesus is called the son of David. And we've talked about already the genealogy of Jesus in this sermon series and how it points to Jesus' lineage in the line of David so that he can rule and reign in the line of this king who was the Jewish king in the glory days of Israel. He could rule and reign forever in that lineage. But here, the title goes to Joseph. And I think there's two reasons for that. One, I think that it's reminding us, hey, remember who we're talking about here. We're talking about the king, the king of all. And we talked about in the first sermon in this series that whether you like Jesus or think about Jesus or follow Jesus or not, he is the king who rules and reigns and someday you will bow before him. But also at the same time, it's like tipping Joseph off to the idea that what the angel is saying is that he is going to be not the biological dad, but the one who raises the Messiah. It's like, hey, remember how you're in the line of David, which he probably didn't even think about hardly ever. I mean, it's not like he was Prince William or something next up. I mean, it's just like so distant and so far away. And he, he doesn't, I'm sure it's like, I'm related to people. My, that's what my family tells me, you know, that did cool things hundreds of years ago. But I do not wake up and think like, wow, sweet. You know, I mean, so cool that my great, 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 great cousin uh, was, was somebody special, you know. And, and yet, in this moment it's like the angel God telling the angel he wants to remind Joseph hey you're here in this spot this special spot with a special purpose you need to understand that you're the right guy for the job you're the right guy for the job now Mary's already heard from an angel and the angel said look you've been you know You've been, you've conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph hasn't heard this, but now he does hear this and he's being told he's going to raise the Messiah. That's a scary, scary job. And we've talked about how Jesus is king in this series and we've talked about how Jesus is the son of God in this series. And now think about it. He looks at Joseph and says, hey, I'm gonna need you to raise the king of all, the son of God. That's a huge, outrageous job. Like, I, I would just want to go somewhere else, do something else, be out of there. And, and not only that, but, but he, the angel says, like, hey, by the way, don't be scared to take Mary home as your wife. And we think that's connected to the Messiah, but that's connected probably to the social shame that Joseph would now have to endure because he's married somebody that the whole world would have looked at and said, she is an adulteress. Remember, I said Joseph is a righteous man. He's a good man. He's a godly man. He's somebody that serves God. And I would say probably based on the fact that God picked him to raise his son, that he was, he was beyond just a, you know, some nice guy. I mean, this is an incredibly godly man who is seeking to live for God with his entire life. And now he's going to do something. Marry this woman that will make everybody in his city, everybody in his social circles look at him and say, that person does not live for God. He has broken a law, a big law that God has put into place by marrying that adulterous girl. I mean, I, if you're a church person, you know, right? Like, like just, 
how we can be, we're, we're bad at this. We're known for this. How we can just look at people's sins and in the church world, and we're not this church, and I'm so thankful for that, but we can be so judgmental, and, and we can look at people, and they do something that we don't like, and we've heard stories of people throwing them under the bus, and I've heard stories of, of church people taking what, what is called traditionally church discipline in this passage of scripture where Jesus says when somebody's caught in their sin, then, then take it to the church. And, and the way that's been used, I know people, it's been used this way. They've done something that is wrong and they've totally upset about it and repent and ask God for forgiveness and the church puts them up on a stage and just says, look what they did. Can you believe how bad these people are in order to punish them? I mean, we know, you know if you're not a Christian, one of the things you think about us is like they can be so mean and judgmental to one another. You know if you grew up in the church and, and you've been divorced, like how, how terrible people can be about divorce. If you got pregnant before you were married, you know and you were in the church world how terrible people can be about pregnancy before marriage in the church. You know that. And here is Joseph, poor guy, not getting a divorce, not getting pregnant before he's married, trying to live for Jesus, and he's gonna be looked at in all of the church circles that he's in and in all of his community as a guy who doesn't faithfully serve God. I mean, the angel, I mean, an angel says to you, don't be afraid. It doesn't make you magically not afraid anymore. <laughs> oh, yeah, I got it. I mean, how many of you have been so scared to do something for God and, and you could hear God just telling you like, hey, don't worry, don't worry, be at peace, don't fear. <laughs> it doesn't work at all. It's like, oh, sure, thanks, God. That's a good promise in your Bible. Like, but it doesn't, it doesn't matter to my emotions. And I can, I mean, I just almost guarantee, almost guarantee that Joseph was so scared. Like this had to just kind of ruin him for a little bit. Like you're asking me to do what? What do you want me to do for you? I'm gonna raise the Messiah? Like that doesn't even make sense. And what I think is that we all face that in our lives a little bit with God. We all are called to something. Maybe you don't know what it is, but we're all called to something. Some of you are being called, I believe, to, to enter into a relationship with Jesus. You know that you should become a Christian. And it's scary. Like, what does that mean? What does it look like to follow Jesus? This guy that lived 2,000 plus years ago, what does that look like to give him my life? What's that gonna change about me? Am I gonna lose friends? Are people gonna still like me? I'll talk about my story in a little bit, but when I got serious about Jesus, people, people my, my best friends, people that I'm still friends with and close to to this day, they looked at me in the eyes and they often said, we miss the old Chad. That was like a, like a daily thing every day. It was like, we miss the old Chad, we miss the old Chad. Like, I don't, but. And then some of you are Christians, you've been Christians a long time, but, but maybe like you, you just know like God's calling you to do uh, some more ministry or God's calling you to break a sin or God's calling you to talk to your coworker about him and, and you're like, I, I just, that's scary. God, I don't wanna make these changes. These things are hard. And to a little, uh, to some small degree, I think we, we can understand what's presented to Joseph. God's saying, don't be scared, trust me, just do it. Like, wait, I am scared though. I am scared. 
And I think what follows in the next verse is the answer to all of it. I think that what Matthew one twenty one says about the Messiah and whether or not we really and deeply believe it decides whether or not we jump when God asks us to. It is what will determine if you give your life to Jesus or not, if you really believe this, if you really believe it. It is what will determine whether or not you will step up to the plate and do what God has called you to do. It, it, it hinges on Matthew one twenty one and whether or not you believe this about the Messiah or not. And frankly, before I read it to you, most Jews didn't believe this about the Messiah. And when we look at the life of Jesus, and it's so clear, like, wow, what a powerful man. How could they have rejected him? How could they have turned their back on him? How could they have asked for him to be crucified? It's because they weren't looking for a Jesus that would do this for them. They weren't looking for a Messiah that would do this for them. And this is what Matthew one twenty one says. She will give birth to a son, and you were to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is, is the Hebrew name Yeshua and it means God saves. It was a popular name at the time when Jesus was born. It wasn't like he was the only Jesus running around. But all the other children given those names were given those names because there was a heightened expectation that the Messiah would soon come. They believed he would save. They did. They believed he would save by overthrowing the Roman government, by starting a physical, earthly kingdom and reigning over the Jewish people, raising them to prominence here on earth, bringing back the glory days that they had enjoyed under their King David, somebody that they just heard about growing up, right? It's like when George Washington was our president, they didn't experience it, but they longed for it. And here Joseph is told, you shall give him this name, not because it points to this coming Messiah, but because he is the coming Messiah. And, and by the way, you should give him this name because he will save his people. Well, that's what they all looked forward to. That's what the Jewish people look forward to. I think that's what the Jewish people look forward to if they are still looking forward to the Messiah, which most sadly are not. But what they forgot is what he, will say, he would save them from. He will save his people from the Romans? No. From tyranny of other governments? No. From not having freedom in their society? No. From their sins? That's what he saves them from. That's what the Messiah was coming to save people from. D.A. Carson in his commentary on this book said, this verse therefore orients the readers of the fundamental purpose of Jesus coming and the essential nature of the reign he inaugurates as King, Messiah, heir of David's throne. This word saves, it's soto in Greek and, and throughout the New Testament it is used in such a beautiful and profound way. It is a comprehensive picture of salvation. It's not just forgiveness of sin, but it is if you're a Christian, you think about what it means to be in a relationship with God. It's, it's all of that. But when it comes to salvation from sin, it doesn't just mean that our sins are forgiven. It means that we are forgiven of our sin, but we also are, are set free from the tyranny of sin. Like they wanted to be set free from the oppression of the Romans. We can no longer sin as we allow for the Holy Spirit to move in our lives. We are no longer chained to sin. We can stop sinning, but also on top of that, we are free from all of the penalties 
and the consequences that sin brought into our world. We get to go to heaven someday. We get to be in a relationship with God now. We can long for all the things that the Jews longed for when they longed for the Messiah. We just don't get to do it now. We get to do it later. Jesus saving people from his sins is about the forgiveness of sin, but it's also about the freedom from sin and, from the, and the freedom of the penalty of sin. That's huge. Sin taints everything that we experience. Everything. I mean, if you think about your life and the most enjoyable things that you can possibly think of, they're still not quite as good as they could be because this thing called sin exists in the world. Disneyland is the closest thing to heaven on earth and some of you when you think about it just think about sin there's lines and people yelling at their kids and people upset and it's hot and you're sick and and and, you know you don't feel as good because the sun's beating down on your head and there's not quite enough shade even Disneyland tainted by this thing called sin as you celebrate Christmas this year it, it should be so fun right I mean all we're doing is opening presents and looking at lights and eating sweet things but it's tainted by sin because you know that you're gonna have to work off this, this food that you've eaten when it comes to January, right? And you know that people will show up and they'll do stupid things and people will make underhanded compliments to you, backhanded compliments and they'll hurt you and, and you gotta deal with certain family members. It's all tainted by sin. And Matthew looks at Joseph and, and he says, look, look, this person who you will raise has come to save you from all of it. Luke Stamps on the Gospel Coalition website wrote, how does Jesus' life, death, and resurrection bring Israel's story to its climax and appointed end? Does it mean what most first century Jews thought it would mean? Does it mean that Jesus comes to bring a political victory for Israel? Does it mean that he overthrows the Romans and sets up his rule in Jerusalem? In one sense, the answer to these questions is yes, but in another sense, not the way everyone expected. You see, what, what the Jews look forward to in the Messiah, it's all going to come to pass. I mean, he will set up shop in Jerusalem in a new earth that is going to be splendid and beautiful and it's going to be without sin and the Jewish people will be shown to be the ones who ushered in the Messiah, who gave us the law that pointed to the Messiah. They will take this glorious place in the story of God's redemption. But it's not going to happen in an earthly way. It's going to happen through, through being saved from sin. If you go, wait, wait. If you're reading the devotional booklet that we've given out this year, it's like, wait, the Jews long for a day when, when somebody would rule and reign us uh, with, with justice and mercy and kindness and goodness. And yet, it doesn't feel that way, right? We're still down here being ruled and reigned by politicians and judges. Someday it will happen. When you look and they, they look forward to a day when food will be in abundance and people will no longer even have to work for their food. It will just show up, right? And how nice would that be to not have to work, to even eat or pay your bills? It will happen someday through the forgiveness of our sins. Everything that the Jews look forward to when they look forward to the Messiah will take place and it will all take place because Jesus saved us from our sins. The Jewish people looked forward to this salvation, but they didn't think about the removal of sin, even though though the Old Testament said that the Messiah would do this. Now, a few of them, they got it right, and they said, well, there has to be this suffering servant too. 
Somebody has to save us from our sins. I see that. But some of them even thought there would be two Messiahs. They got that way wrong. They didn't see that the Messiah would come, that he would suffer, and then he would rise from the grave and he would come back and set up shop here on earth forever, eventually. Psalm 137 and 8 says, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. But even more telling is Isaiah 53, 5, where it says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. When you think about whether or not you're going to serve God, whether it's in something specific or with your entire life, it all comes down to a single question. Do you believe he is the savior from sin or not? Because you can think a lot of great things about Jesus and totally miss the point. The Jews did. They liked him when he was walking the earth, feeding people, doing miracles, walking on water, calming storms, healing people. They loved him. but they just couldn't understand why he wouldn't overthrow the Romans and make everything perfect for them now. And so they rejected him. And I believe that we will reject him if we forget, if we forget or don't understand in the first place that he came first and foremost to save us from our sins. And even more, I think we must remember how he did that for us. And as Christians, we know that the way in which he saved us from our sins was not by snapping his fingers, doing a little magic, but instead it was through offering his life by giving himself up to the most horrific, brutal death the world has ever known, not because it was physically the most excruciating, although it may have been, but because it was spiritually hell on earth. He paid for every one of your sins when he hung on a cross. When he was nailed to that tree, he was nailed there because of the things that you have done. And one of the New Testament books describes it as like a piece of paper with all your sins written down and it was nailed there, but it was his body that was that piece of paper. And so this morning, as we gather to do this Christmas message, I want to read to you from Matthew 27. And I'm going to read quite a lot of it. Because in Matthew 27, it tells emphatically the story of Jesus being arrested and killed for your sins. And I, I, I'm under the conviction that we who preach on Sunday mornings, we gather too often and think, well, our people know that story already. And so what does it really matter if we tell it again? Like we all know Jesus died. Why do we have to think about that? We have to think about it because our whole life depends on whether or not we believe and remember it. Matthew 27, 17. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? In Matthew 27, 20 through 22, but the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor Barabbas. They answered, oh, then he answered, what shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked, notice that. Even he recognizes. And they all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. 
But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood is on us and our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots and sitting down. They kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said. But he can't save himself. He said, the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. And then in Matthew 27, 45 through 46, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, Amasabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here's the king of all, the son of God, who could have called down a legion of angels, struck everybody around him dead, and moved on with his life. But he willingly, willingly allowed for himself to be arrested, beaten, flogged, and nailed to a cross because of all the lies you have told, because of all the times you slandered another person, because of all the ways that you've been mean to your spouse, because of all of the evil thoughts that you've had, because of all of the sexual sins that you have committed, because of all of the evil in your life, he hung there and he looked down and he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Craig S. Keener says, more than anything, Matthew's narrative of the virgin birth like every other event in Matthew, explains and exalts the character of the Lord. Nothing Matthew tells us is more practical than the way he reveals the heart and character of our Lord. As we get to know Jesus better through the scriptures, we get to know scripture's author and our character becomes more like his. I think too often we just strive and strive and strive to to figure out how to do life better. Most of the sermons that will be preached in this country today are basically self-help sermons that say, here's what the Bible says about this specific thing. I do the same thing. I'm not mocking other pastors without talking about myself too. Here's how you fix that issue in your life. But what is so clear to me as I look at the word of God, what has changed my life is not saying, here's what the Bible says about how to do it better. It's looking at Jesus and recognizing more and more who he is and what he has done. And when I do that, I more willingly and fully give my life to him no matter what he has asked or called me to do. It's so easy even as a church to just fall into the traps of the world saying let's try a little harder when we should be saying let's look at Jesus a little more 
And let's remember a little more fully that he suffered incredibly so that we might be saved from our sins. If you've been around, then you know my story. I became a Christian at four years old. I was baptized when I was eight, and I don't know if I was really a Christian at that point. It probably would depend on what theologian you talk to. I lived for Jesus somewhat. I cared about Jesus. I knew Jesus was with me, and he protected me, and uh, I was better than other kids, whatever that means. Uh, people kind of knew I was a Christian kid, and they would have called me a good kid. But it wasn't until I was 17 years old that I really became serious about Jesus. It wasn't until I was 17 years old that my life was on a trajectory to stand on a stage and talk to you about Jesus. And at 17 years old, one night, I realized how many, how many, just not even like how deep and bad things were, but how many things I've done that are just so counter what God has called me to do. To do. How many times I had blatantly sinned against him without really even thinking about it or caring about it, the way I talked, the way I thought, the things I looked at, all of it. It was like, I, I'm really sinful. I'm really, really sinful. As I sat in my bedroom alone, Something along the lines of this thought came to me. If I am this sinful, how incredible of a sacrifice was it for Jesus to die for these sins? And I've told you before, if you've been around, I spent hours crying on my bedroom floor. And I have been an imperfect person still since that day. But I have been a person that really and genuinely wants to live for Jesus. And as you consider the story of Joseph sitting there, hearing the first part of this prophecy, like, hey, you're, you're gonna raise my son. That's God saying, you're gonna raise my son. Joseph thinking, I'm gonna be publicly shamed for the rest of my life. Should I do it anyway? And the answer was yes for Joseph and I think it's partly because he knew that this Savior would save him from his sins. And as you consider whether you live for God, whether you remove that sin, whether you do that thing, you must really consider whether or not you believe, are thinking about, remembering, your life is driven by the fact that you are a wretched sinner. You have done so many things that you regret. And Jesus died for all of it. The Bible plan that some of us in this church are reading together, it's an open Bible plan. If you're interested, let me know. Said this this week, you can't go to the cross with just your head and not your heart. It doesn't work that way. Calvary is not a mental trip. It's not an intellectual exercise. It's not a divine calculation or a cold theological principle. Jesus saved us, this is me now, Jesus saved us from sin by dying a brutal death on a cross and it is that fact, that reality that when we allow it to sink into our hearts will change how we live our lives. And I hope that you'll allow for that to happen this morning. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, <laughs> my God, my King, I thank you that you didn't look down from heaven look at our sin and, and destroy us. <laughs> you could have, at least theoretically. It's within your right, God, but it is not within your character and your nature, and that is brilliant to me. And so instead, you look down, God, at me and, and my sin, 
<laughs> and you died for me, and you did that for all of us. And that is incredible. So this morning I say thank you first. And I also say, God, I pray that if people have not been touched by that truth, that you would, that you would just, by your spirit, you would just be like a waterfall of grace into their lives and they, and they would, or, or maybe a waterfall of conviction, reminding of their sin, whatever needs to happen, but you would hit them like you did for me, God, half my life ago now with the incredible, amazing grace of the cross. And I pray, God, for those of us that do know what you've done for us, and we believe it, and we've believed it for a long time. I pray, God, that we would not just believe it as a mental exercise, but our hearts, God, would, would be in tune with the incredibly amazing, ridiculous grace that you, that you poured out when your blood poured out on the cross. I pray, God, that our lives, our decisions, the things we do, even the way we do the things we do, God, would all, would all flow out of our, our hearts, God, hearts that are, that are moved, even daily, by your ridiculously amazing grace. Let that happen in us, God. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. During this